if you don't have privacy, you can't have speech, right? Um, you're going to be surveilled by not just pol police state, right? You're going to be surveilled by the networks that you're in, you know, by corporate, you know, giants and so on and so forth. And your voice will not be amplified or heard as much. We certainly see a lot of that um, if you're identified as sort of a, a miscreant, let's say, right? But, you know, I mean, in the U.S., uh, the Fourth Amendment is usually what you hear uh, about. And in this context, you hear about unreasonable search and seizure, right? Um, the idea that our personal effects should be free from being surveilled, you know, copied. When we're talking about digital surveillance, we're talking about making copies of your information, right? Mm -hmm. And thrown in some database somewhere um, and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, privacy, again, it, it's sort of... Um, it's, it's a fundamental, a fundamentally important, um, uh, you know, uh, requirement for even interacting on the kinds of platforms that we're interacting on. Um, we needed to have, you know, some direct conversations to set up this now live stream that we're doing, right? This week on Monero Talk is sponsored by Cake Wallet. Store, send, receive, and exchange your Monero and Bitcoin safely on iOS and Android too. Cake Wallet is open source and you always control your own keys. And by Stealth EX, an instant exchange where privacy is the top concern. Go to StealthEX.io to instantly exchange between Monero and 450 plus assets without having to create an account or register and with no limits. Making Stealth EX a simple way to purchase Monero with crypto anonymously. Monero Talk is also made possible from contributions by viewers and listeners like you. And supporting us is easier than ever. By typing in MoneroTalk.crypto in your Monero.com or Cake Wallet send address field to send us a tip. This week on Monero Talk. Douglas Tuman has a wide-ranging convo with cybersecurity professor Sean O'Brien of Yale Law School. Brian is the founder of the Privacy Lab at Yale's Information Society Project, the open source lead of Tari, and a security advisor at Panquake. He is also a Monero enthusiast. The two discuss the philosophical reasons for why privacy should be considered a fundamental human right, how the right needs to be preserved in the digital age, surveillance capitalism, and how the decentralized version of Twitter, Panquake, is being built to resist its influence, allowing people to control their own data. They also discuss the Yale Law School Privacy Lab that Sean is a founder of and how he and the lab support and want to help bring attention to privacy-preserving tech open source projects like Monero. Monero Talk starts now. All right. Sean, welcome to Monero Talk. How are you? Happy to be here. Good, man. I'm good. It's a, it's a beautiful day here in New York. Yeah, beautiful here, too. I'm in New Haven, Connecticut, so not that different. <laughs> uh, the birds are chirping. Trump is is getting arrested. It's 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 a beautiful spring day oh, out here in New, in New York. It's It's pretty wild. I guess I guess we don't need to go into that. We won't we won't go into any of that, guys. As as compelling as it is, uh, today we're here to focus on well, really, first and foremost, getting to know Sean. Uh, I, I I'll be honest, I, I I don't know much about you. I just recently discovered you um, through uh, Chill from the Monero community. Mm -hmm. She had recommended that we get in touch with Pancake Quick, get them involved in Monerotopia, which we've done. Uh, I believe you guys are presenting. Uh, as, as a build up to that, we wanted to have you guys come on and just talk about it. And through that, I met I met Sean. And then, you know, through Googling, I see you're, you're uh, quite the interesting, prolific privacy character. You're not, you're, you know, you're not just any regular Joe Schmo. You have uh, quite the resume. So do you, do you want to quickly give a you know, quick intro of yourself? Uh, you know why why you're in this whole privacy tech world and all that jazz sure yeah so um i'm sean o'brien for the folks who are just listening um i am a visiting lecturer at yale university for um, cybersecurity. i co-teach that with another professor it's a lot of fun um i started getting into this space um through working um as a developer as a sysadmin um, and also helping out activist groups and um, legal clinics with, um, you know, being more anonymous, more private, um, more secure <laughs> online. I'm showing them how to use things like, you know, Tor and other um, great technologies to, uh, to try to make sure that they're not leaving too many tracks on the internet. Um, so from that, uh, 
I basically founded something at Yale Law School called uh, Privacy Lab. Um, that's part of something called the Information Society Project. This is where we're going with this big resume, right? It's a lot of big words, really. Um, and, um, you know, I've been involved in free and open source software projects for a very long time. Um, contributed to quite a few, and I'm the chief security advisor for Panquake. Um, so we've been working on this for a little over a couple of years now and uh, just building something that I think is pretty amazing and um, will definitely change the world. Very cool, man. Very cool. And, and we will definitely get into Panquick. Before we get there, so what is what is the Privacy Lab uh, at Yale? Can you can you go into down that road a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So we do uh, digital self defense workshops. Um, so again, the kinds of things I was talking about that, like if you're I don't know helping out undocumented workers, or you're just helping out you know someone's grandmother, and you want to show them a way that they don't have to have targeted ads shoved into their faces, right? Um, you show them how to use ad blockers. You show them how to use this great open source software that's all around us. Um, that's a big component of what we do at Privacy Lab. Um, another big piece that we do is we investigate, um, especially mobile and web apps. Uh, we look at privacy leakage. So we look at, for example, um, what people have now started to call trackers. And that term can mean a lot of different things. Um, but we're specifically looking at snippets of code inside of these applications that the user isn't aware of. Um, that you can't opt into if you wanted to, um, and which, for example, can, you know, spy on your location, right? Can geofence you, can, you know, track you everywhere you go, can correlate that information with demographic information, um, and so on and so forth. Um, we uh, partner with other groups, other nonprofits and uh, free and open source software groups. Uh, one of the ones which we've been very close to is one called Exodus Privacy um, that's over in France. Um, they have a database of, you know, I don't even know how many thousands of apps at the moment, but um, if you go out there and you look, you'll find these tracker profiles that will say, hey, your app has X amount of track trackers in it and these trackers do xyz you know they try to get camera access they try to get microphone access they try to get your location um, those profiles um, we work with them to build um, so we submitted the first profiles to that database and then you know refine them over time with the help of, of course community volunteers and then that stuff ends up going upstream like good open source stuff should, right? Um, it ends up going upstream to what's called the F-Droid project, which is uh, basically a free and open source uh, app store for Android. Um, so all of the apps that are in F-Droid are scanned against this database and they don't have those nasties in them. So it's pretty fun stuff. Oh, so you're um, part of that whole yeah. ecosystem with F-Droid. Interesting. Mm -hmm. We're a small component, but uh, we're we're proud to be part of it. And then the other thing, of course, we do we we run events and you know we bring in speakers and so on and so forth. Very cool. And so, like the the hands on stuff, who is that really geared to? It's geared toward, and maybe you said this already, and I kind of missed it. It's it's geared towards like students and people at Yale and people in the law school, or it's geared towards outsiders that are coming in for these events to to learn. Yeah, so we try to cater to audience to the best of our ability, right? Um, we have a set group of materials, which, by the way, does need a little bit of updating if anybody wants to help volunteer. Um, but we have a set group of materials that uh, we sort of remix for different groups. Um, we do often bring in folks from the surrounding community around Yale um, in that city, New Haven, Connecticut, which is also where I was born and raised. Um, and uh, sometimes we'll do specific, you know, um, training and things like PGP email, for example, for folks who are lawyers or legal professionals and they need to know how to do this, right? Um, this specific task. Generally speaking, we want to keep things light. Um, I always want to introduce people to new technology and just try to get as much across as possible in the short period of time when you're doing a workshop without completely inundating. <laughs> and, the balance is not necessarily easy, um, as I'm sure you know, and, and the audience here, the Monero folks know, um, there's a lot of technology out to get us, so to speak, trying to spy on us, trying to surveil us and so on. And when you do these workshops, you sort of ride the line of, you know, kind of talking about that scary stuff and then talking about, you know, potential solutions. And you don't want to scare so much that people don't want to take the solutions. You know what I mean? So it's, it's a weird line to 
to walk. And to just kind of dumb it down even further, like wh- why is Yale Law School even interested in any, any of this to begin with? Like why why is this a thing? Why why does this exist at Yale? I understand why you're interested in it perhaps, or we'll get more into that, but why is Yale? Sure. Um, so the part of Yale Law School that we're in has a number of legal clinics, for example, that do amazing work. Um, they're always working on big cases, really important cases, um, high profile folks potentially, or, and folks who also you know need legal representation for, for example, constitutional cases, right? Um, So that's one reason we have a good place there. Um, Another reason is that, you know, everybody deserves privacy, right? So um, I think there's a strong understanding that it benefits the Yale community to have um, this sort of uh, what we call it a lab and and have that there to show people um, what they can do to better protect themselves. And Beyond that, you know, privacy, this thing we call privacy has sort of morphed into every aspect of digital life. What we're really talking about is sort of a digital sovereignty or, you know, we're constantly talking about speech issues, those kinds of things that are sort of, you know, riding in in this area. Um, When we're talking about being surveilled, we're talking about potentially being censored, right? Um, And those kinds of issues, of course, are very important to a legal school, especially one that focuses as much on constitutional law as Yale does. And you have a legal background in addition to uh, like a technical background? I do not. (laughs) I am around lawyers constantly and I work with lawyers very closely, but I do not. So it does rub off a little bit, but I am not a lawyer. Don't take anything I say as legal advice. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, because I, I wanted to go down the, the, you know, the legal road a little bit, if, if mm-hmm. you don't mind, just kind of like uh, sure. th- these ideals that that, uh, you know, the, the right to privacy is are, are built upon. Can, can you give us some insight into that? Like why? I mean, we talk about it on the show all the time, but it'd be nice to hear it come from somebody else. Like, you know, why why are we so concerned about privacy to begin with? And and do we think there's essentially legal protection, perhaps in the Constitution itself, that people a right to privacy? Sure. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, and as far as, you know, this whole concept of the right to privacy would be concerned, um, assuming we had that in the United States, and we don't really have a right to privacy enshrined in law anywhere in the U.S. Um, so th- some other countries have paid lip service to it, but we don't even do that here. Um, but uh, anyway, privacy is a fundamental requirement for exercising the other rights, for example, that you have under the Constitution. Right. Um, And this thing we call the Constitution in the United States is, of course, built upon older concepts around, you know, common law and so on and so forth. You can go back to Magna Carta if you really want to do it. Um, But, you know, those concepts are really important for us to be citizens first and digital citizens as well. Right. And the two are very intermeshed at the moment. if you don't have privacy, you can't have speech, right? Um, you're going to be surveilled by not just pol- police state, right? You're going to be surveilled by the networks that you're in, you know, by corporate, you know, giants and so on and so forth. And your voice will not be amplified or heard as much. We see a lot of that um, if you're identified as sort of a, a miscreant, let's say, right? But, you know, I mean, in the U.S., uh, the Fourth Amendment is usually what you hear uh, about in this context. You hear about unreasonable search and seizure, right? Um, the idea that our personal effects should be free from being surveilled, you know, copied. When we're talking about digital surveillance, we're talking about making copies of your information, right? Mm-hmm. And thrown in some database somewhere um, and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, privacy, again, it, it's sort of... Um, it's, it's a fundamental, a fundamentally important, um, uh, you know, uh, requirement for even interacting on the kinds of platforms that we're interacting on. Um, we needed to have, you know, some direct conversations to set up this now live stream that we're doing, right? Um, and we need to have that space where we can talk to people directly one-on-one as humans. Um, so I think going further, if you're really thinking about privacy, you know, as legal, but sort of beyond that, you know, sort of in the, you know, human rights, you know, as a fundamental human right, um, it's required for everything we do. Um, I tend to think of privacy as a fundamental right for autonomy, but also self-representation, right? If you're going to have power at all in this world that we're in, where you're constantly online, constantly showing yourself, you know, all these cloud economies that are popping up and so on. 
Um, you need to be able to be private, have private thoughts, right? Um, and if you don't have that, the people who are most surveilled, right, those people are going to be the ones who have less ability to move through the digital world, have that autonomy, have that power, if we want to put it in, in the context of power. Um, and uh, basically, they're just not going to be able to, to make it in the world that's being built around everyone. Um, that's going to be accelerated. I mean, we could talk about AI if you wanted to, but um, as, for example, you know, more and more people have their lives scraped, categorized, and, you know, put into a bucket somewhere by some AI that's ranking them on some, let's say, social credit scale, which I think is coming, um, then privacy is going to be even more important. Um, we need to be able to act, think, right, which is very fundamental, and speak um, and be able to keep some things um, to ourselves. It's also about how you represent yourself, right? Um, you don't know me, right? I don't know you. Um, we represent ourselves every second of a conversation with some sort of fundamental, you know, um, neurological concept of who we are. And you can't have that representation without privacy, right? Um, you can't even know yourself if you can't keep certain, certain things to yourself. And that's a really important thing to, to think about as well. I like that, man. Uh, you go, you go to the core of it. That's that's where I go as well. I, I had a quote. My my pinned quote is: uh, "The elimination of privacy is the elimination of personal communication and even inner thought. Privacy preserves individuality. If all value transfers are public and recorded, privacy is eroded. The erosion of privacy is deterioration of the self. Monero preserves the self. So, in, in terms of Monero and Bitcoin, but uh, you know." yeah same same core concept there and i couldn't agree with you more and especially as you're alluding to in this day and age uh it's it's more of a concern than ever obviously i don't think our founding fathers had had any idea like where, where we would eventually be right in terms of technology what the public square would actually look like right and i think that's where panquake starts to come in right so Yep. The, you know this is kind of kind of a different different core concept but privacy tied into it so this idea that uh, our our public squares are are now currently run by large corporations that control social media twitter being one of them um and you guys are setting out to build something that's going to disrupt that and i guess create a decentralized i, I don't know much about it but create a decentralized sure. version of of twitter essentially is what the elevator pitch would be yeah so the the elevator pitch is basically next generation short messaging service so twitter like if you want to call it that but there may not be a twitter around for much longer who knows um despite the fact that we're on twitter now um, but anyway pancake is a uh next generation this is twitter? i thought this was the, my dogecoin app oh no yeah i know he knows these days confused. a bit late on the april fools i guess um anyway but uh yeah it's I like to think of Panquake, and it's not going to be the only replacement for advertising surveillance networks out there, but Panquake is a replacement for advertising surveillance networks, right? Um, the thing that, uh, that concept of the internet as a public square, a place where people can have dialogue and conversations and, you know, follow news and meet new people and, you know, um, feed their intellectual curiosity, right? Um, Panquake is a space where we're taking all that very, very seriously. And we're making sure that it's a place that people actually want to be, right? Um, so when we say it goes beyond- they, Where they yep. own their, their data, right? So tying into the privacy. So where they- they own themselves. They own that. I assume, right? Is that that's that's part of the, the value? Yeah. So, so that sovereignty over your data is a huge, huge thing, right? So, um, basically, you know, if we, we want to start getting past just the fun features, and there are a lot of fun features with Panquick as well that we've been thinking about. But if we want to get into the security stuff, um, the model is basically local first, client side computing, right? So, your personal user data store is encrypted on your device, right? an easy sell for the cryptocurrency folks, right? Um, we're all used to wallets now. We're all used to recovery codes and so on. That model is starting to change the world and has done a tremendous amount in a very short period of time to change the digital networks that we use. Um, Panquake is going to be the first social app, you know, in this space to take that very seriously, to make sure that your data is on your device. Um, 
But really where it starts is by not collecting data in the first place, right? Um, we're not collecting huge profiles on users. We're not, you know, getting all this information which these other networks are using for KYC essentially, right? Um, you can sign up for Panquake and give extremely minimal information and then have your identity, right, tied to your machine or machines. Um, so that's sort of the fundamental thing there. Yep. What do you mean your identity tied to your explain that so literally you've got encrypted data um I, and you're logging in the same way you would with let's say a wallet like metamask right um yeah. to the panquake network um that's tied if you want to um to a subscription um so we have a flat five dollar subscription fee um just very nice honest simple right revenue model for the network um, you don't have to um, sign up for that subscription. That subscription just gives you, you know, certain features, key features of the network that you can't use if you just um, stay anonymous. But you will be able to interact um, interact with the network with a free anonymous account. Um, so I go out to Panquick for the first time. I'm reading your, let's say, timeline, right? And I'm looking at the cool things that you're posting. Uh, we call them quakes, right? Uh, the, the short messages. Um, so I see your quakes. Um, I decide to sort of lurk for a while and then I sign up, right? Um, I set a handle for myself. Um, then if I want to, I can use that handle to also subscribe to the network. And now I have these other features, for example, a panquake. Um, so panquake, uh, is, and you know, it's very easy to accidentally say pancake because it's sort of that concept of stacking, um, information. Basically you can take quakes and stack them together and build basically, um, a really nicely curated thread um and you know save that and share that panquake with your user um so it's one of the main features we're really we're really proud of um it's all about positive amplification so we've built in some other sort of amplification tools um that make it real easy to reach your followers um one of the pieces that you know, current social networks, especially as they're sort of going down the tubes, in my opinion. Um, but uh, current social networks are making it harder and harder for you to reach your audience, you know? So it's like, you know, you build a business, you build a podcast, you build, you know, I don't know, you're an information activist or you're an investigative journalist. How do you actually get the information out to the people who need to see it? Um, that's getting harder and harder. Um, so, for example, in Panquake, we have a feature called Thunderquakes, um, which will basically set a scheduled message out to anyone who opts in to amplify that message. So I set up a Thunderquake. I'm going to release some big investigative story on Monday, let's say. And uh, a message goes out to my followers saying, hey, would you like to participate in amplifying this message and participate in this Thunderquake? Um, if those followers say yes, on Monday, they just amplify that message out to all of their followers and then so forth. So we're working on some pretty cool stuff beyond the privacy, beyond the security. Um, but we start with that client first user focused model. And then we make sure that users can actually use the thing and care about their network and curate content to their audience. Very cool. Very cool. How would you compare it to something like uh, Nostra, which we're seeing gaining a lot of organic traction? Yeah. So I'm glad you've pronounced that in real life now, because I've never heard someone actually pronounce that. I didn't know if it was Noster or what. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I said it was confidence too. I have no idea. Yeah. Well, we'll find out after this, I'm sure. But um, yeah, I think that uh, all those uh, alternative networks are great. Um, they're also thinking very seriously, obviously, about sovereignty over your data, about keeping things, you know, um, to yourself and not just sharing them in some centralized database. Um, we've seen a lot of folks also move to the traditional sort of federated open source networks like Mastodon, like huge mm -hmm. exodus um, a few months ago out there, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of users going out to these federated services. Um, Panquake is, well, we're planning it um, and we're going to do it. Um, we want to be the standard bearer for a lot of these sort of federations, right? So we're using the protocol ActivityPub um, which is also the protocol that a lot of these federated services use. Um, on the back end, um, we're using, for example, Live Peer-to-Peer, -peer, um, which is an exciting technology that a lot of decentralized applications use. Um, 
And we're going to be one awesome app in this federated, you know, ecosystem of apps and really, you know, as I said, championing, um, you know, the standard bearer for that, that kind of technology. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's great that people are hacking on all kinds of things, building all kinds of things, and we're going to need lots and lots of different solutions. Um, not just because of the so-called marketplace of ideas where you want to have, you know, competition. Um, I don't see it so much as competition. I see it as, you know, having different apps for different aspects of your communication for different audiences in your life. And um, look, that's how we started this thing called the internet, right? <laughs> um, yeah, sure. sure. You know. So so what niche do you guys see it taking on early on? Like, uh, you know, why, why, why would somebody potentially start using Panquake versus whatever, Nostra or Mastodon or insight into that? Everything we do with Panquake, we want to make sure that the average mainstream user can um, relate to. So uh, from the design, which is, you know, very bright and colorful um, and which has awesome graphics that are very, you know, a little cutesy, right? You know, food based and so on and so forth. Um, going from that design to, you know, just the interaction, um, it has to be something that my grandmother can use. It has to be something that Gen Z also wants to use. You know, um, we don't want to hit people over the head with the technology. You should just go into the application, feel at home, fall into the user interface, so to speak, um, and be happy with it. Um, so we're really trying to reach, you know, as mainstream of an audience as possible in that sense. That said, of course, and if you look at the team behind Panquake, you'll see there's a lot of folks in the information activism space, um, in the investigative journalism space. Um, Susie Dawson, who's the founder, investigative journalist, also an amazing software delivery manager, but um, she uh, also has done great journalism. So we think a lot about those cases, journalists, and even whistleblowers, right? Um, we want the security and the privacy model for Panquake to be high enough that people can use it to disclose information that the public needs to know, you know, um, and there certainly isn't enough of that recently. Um, folks publish interesting things, folks publish investigative reporting, and it's getting buried in these other networks. You can barely find it. And if you do find it, it's barely reached anyone. Um, so, you know, we want to make sure that we cater to that as well. Part of my job is basically advising on the security models of, uh, for different types of users. Um, so we are going to walk users through, you know, different levels of security, right? If you don't think your threat model is very high and you're just going to post pictures of cats and dogs, well, then these are the settings we recommend, right? Um, if you have something really important that needs to get out there now to, to a lot of folks, um, your whistleblower, let's say, then these are the settings we would recommend. And um, that's sort of how we're going to walk the users through that process. And how, you know, censorship resistant is it, you know, at its core? Um, is it anything that gets posted on Panquake will forever be on Panquake? Is there or are there means? of some kind of control in place. So the most important thing to us is to make sure that we deliver on the promises we have to our users and, and right now our backers, right? The folks who have backed the project over the last few years. Um, and a huge part of that is transparency, right? Um, blockchain is really good at making sure that you have an immutable record, right, of information and that you can go through and trace that information and make sure that the transactions that happened actually happened, right? Um, so for Panquake, you, you know, we want to make sure that if we do moderate, right, and when we do moderate, and certainly there's going to be some content that has to be removed from the application, um, you will have a record of that moderation in the blockchain, right? Um, when we talk to users, that's actually the most important thing for them. Um, they want to know that they have sort of a fair process. They want to know that they sort of have, they know what rules they need to operate by instead of some, you know, unaccountable black box algorithm or some algorithm that's gaming the system, right? Um, as we just saw with the Twitter algorithm being uh, open sourced, yeah. published. Um, I'm not sure it's under an open source license, but it was published. Um, but we saw that, you know, certain topics were being gamed. Um, we don't do that. There's no AI moderation. There's no timeline manipulation. Um, there's no selling of user data. So that transparency of the moderation process is really important. Um, I also think uh, when we actually reveal what we're working on for our moderation model, 
you know, it's not important what I think or what, you know, Susie thinks or, you know, the other folks who are working on the project. Um, we're coming up with a new model, um, which will change the face of moderation and that we hope that others will actually also adopt. Um, so stay tuned for that aspect. Um, on the specific sort of technical, you know, um, decentralization, censorship resistance stuff, um, of course, it's blockchain, right? Uh, we want folks to be participating actively in the network. We're going to be using trust models to rank different nodes so that they have different levels of participation in this network. Um, we're using something called Byzantine fault tolerance or in this case, practical Byzantine fault tolerance, right? Um, to come up with a consensus model so that the network can operate in a truly decentralized way, sharing around this um, blockchain ledger, essentially, right? Um, and we're also going to have nodes uh, transparently sending content, you know, using, for example, peer-to-peer, -peer, which folks should be aware of from um, IPFS, right? The IPFS project. Um, all that stuff is great, awesome, decentralized tech. Um, we also are testing everything against Tor, right? Um, we want to make sure we have a reasonable, good user experience for people using the Tor browser, for example. Um, we're aware of all these other mixed networks out there. I mean, I'm constantly showing people how to use them. Um, I know Monerotopia is going to have somebody from NIM, for example. Yeah. Um, those kinds of networks we're looking very closely at. And if we can meet those use cases, we want to make sure that our stuff runs there as well. The team's globally distributed. It's, it's one of the most, not just talented, but glo globally distributed teams that I've ever worked with. Um, it has to be the most distributed. <laughs> so we also have an organization that's, um, you know, worldwide. And I think that's really important. It's not some American, you know, in his garage, uh, me, for example, coming up with everything and selling it to some VC, Silicon Valley, whatever. Um, so I think that's really important. It, and and so just give me further insight. So yeah, how so it it, it isn't self propelling. I mean, it's not it's not like a crypto where there's there's nobody can control it. You guys there are you guys can curate and control it. So what what yeah, is, so, how does that so, architecture work? Where it's you know it's a crypto, it's decentralized, but there's also essentially this centralized authority that has purview. Like how does that how does that work out? Sure. So traditionally in blockchain, there's two models, right? There's the permissionless uh, model, right, where you do, for example, have a proof of work, um, you know, a model where you just basically spin up nodes and you mine solve difficult problems and you're on the network, right? Mm -hmm. um, or we all know about staking, et cetera, right? But there's also permission networks that are out there. Um, this version of consensus, this BFT, Byzantine fault tolerance, is permission, meaning that nodes ha have to operate in some way that's trusted to be able to have certain um, abilities on the network, for example, to verify and validate content. Um, we've seen these kinds of networks in the past. Um, those of your audience who uh, are aware of, for example, the Helium network, um, it at least used to operate on this model. I'm not sure how much of it is doing that these days after the token sort of fell apart. Um, but, you know, uh, these models work. You can make large distributed networks where the blockchain record is shared. Nodes can communicate with a lot of trust. You know that when you send a quake to Panquake, it's being written to uh, the blockchain and you can verify it. And of course, we're going to have all the bells and whistles like Blockchain Explorer and so on. Um, that said, um, we want to make sure that this public square, this, this public space, as you call it, um, where folks are going to be communicating um, has some sort of friendliness is a place that you want to be, right? It's not just going to get flooded with spam or who the heck knows what. So you have to have some level of moderation to, to do that. Um, our application will have certain rules, um, you know, and folks who sign up for the subscriptions, uh, you know, will have certain um, capabilities, you know, to use these fun features, right? Um, if they subscribe. Um, that doesn't stop anyone, of course, from looking at the blockchain record. It certainly doesn't stop people from extending and building upon what we're building, um, potentially even building other applications, right, um, that use the same blockchain ledger. Um, we're taking extensibility very seriously, and we want to make sure we have APIs that people can plug into. We want people to build and extend upon what we're doing. 
Um, first, we've got to get our application out, right? Um, and our application is going to be the one that we build and love and takes into account all these things that we're thinking about. Um, right. So it's it's the application that that's where the centralized component is taking place. That's where the curation takes place. But the the blockchain is you know uh, any, any permissionless in that anybody can send out messages. Messages get stored, and there's no censorship taking place there. And theoretically, somebody can come build their own version of an application that could interpret or uh, decide what it wants to expose from the blockchain differently from than your application, perhaps being whatever. Uh, less so concerned start, about the, 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 what certain materials may be, right? Exactly, right. So, um, you know, we saw this model with library in Odyssey, right? It's very similar, um, where it's like, yeah, you can build a, another front end if you want to. Um, but, you know, um, the other thing I should say that's really important is um, we think very strongly about making sure the tech we build is humane. Um, those people, I'm sure, are very well aware of how they're being manipulated in these other social media stacks and these other applications. Um, they're sort of being treated like they're sitting on a stool at a casino, right? Um, and we don't want to be doing that. So the user experience in the application has to be a very specific one. Um, we want to make sure that people are amplifying in such a way that's positive at all times as much as we can. Um, we're thinking very strongly about some of the issues with addiction and so on and social media. Um, we're thinking very strongly about, you know, seeing the content you actually want to see. So um, when you're in Panquake, you're going to see the content from your followers and your followers only and topics that you search, of course, right? So if you search for something, you're going to see it. Um, but that alone, you know, that experience does require the application to sort of control that, that right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I mean, there's really no way around it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, th these issues that you're talking about, and they're, and they're very real, are a product of surveillance capitalism, right? So it's this because there's this desire to have control over people and the information for purposes of making the app more engaging and more valuable and uh, more valuable to media that may want to advertise there. So all these things feed each other in a loop. How does, Pan I know Panquake is, is avoiding that uh, with the, you know, the the architecture of their system and the open source nature and the blockchain based nature of it, but how are they avoiding capitalistic aspect of it? I guess essentially what's what's keeping Panquake going, right? So uh, well, we've got the flat subscription fee. Okay, um, so it's and, subscription fee, and is there is, is there something else as well, or is it it's it's going to fund itself through essentially people paying to participate that's right absolutely um so just flat subscription fee i mean you know uh we are very serious about keeping that line okay this is not a project that's trying to make a billion dollars we're very skeptical of billionaires taking over social media networks um we don't want to have anything to do with this idea of just growing to some massive scale instantly when the doors are opened um, if you look at the model that we're coming up with for release, um, we're going to have 5,000 users to start. Um, so folks who are listening can sign up or apply, I should say, to our beta. Um, give us a little bit of information so we can verify that you're human. Um, and then if we allow you into the beta, um, you get a reduced subscription. Actually, it's $3 a month for life rather than $5 USD. What, what um, if you pay with Monero? What's the, what's the discount there if you pay with Monero? You need to think about it. <laughs> We're definitely going to be taking crypto payments, but we haven't done a, done, uh, a uh, reduced cost for, for Monero. That's a great idea, I think. Um, and good. I love seeing stuff like that. Um, but yeah, we want people to pay in crypto, certainly. Um, and that's another aspect I think I don't see too many other networks taking very seriously these days. Um, but yeah, no manipulation. We don't want to be manipulating you. I mean, the side of it that people don't talk about with this surveillance capitalism, right, um, is that these behemoth big tech companies have had to waste who knows how much engineering that could have gone into awesome stuff, right, just to come up with methods to manipulate users into looking at ads, basically, and selling that data upstream to the Ford Motor Companies and the Coca-Colas and so on and so forth, right? Um, we're seeing that model fall apart. The advertising is not very good. It does it reaches people often after they've made a purchase. So if you go out and you buy a new Gillette razor, you might see a Gillette ad afterwards, not before, um, et cetera, et cetera. And um, you know, we don't want to have anything to do with that. We don't have to build that stuff so we can concentrate on the other thing. Um, but yeah, 
very honest subscription fee. And I will note um, Susie Dawson, who of course came up with this and really built the uh, concepts that are now fundamental that we're gonna deliver on. Um, she, when she was talking to people, they would say, hey, you know, there's no way that you're gonna have a social media application that's funded by subscriptions. And we're seeing it everywhere now. Twitter's doing it obviously for the verification um, and they're still spying on you. Um, Facebook's right. going to be doing it for verification and they're still spying on you. Right. Um, so at least with this, you're, you're actually getting something for that subscription. If you're... That's right. And again, you don't have to subscribe. Um, you know, your experience is going to be a little different. It's going to be more like browsing, you know, Twitter without an account, right? Um, or, you know, reading the news, let's say. Um, you'll still be able to reply to and, you know, have some level of communication. Um, and we have ways that we're figuring out how we're going to moderate that, of course. Um, but, you know, if you really want to get involved and get in there, you're going to have a subscription. We also um, have thought about, because we care about a worldwide global network, not just Americans, not just folks who can afford it. Of course, there's plenty of poor people in the US as well. Um, we're gonna have applications for what we call compassionate accounts. Um, so you basically can be on Panquake for free. Um, when I speak to folks, um, you know, about this, it's very interesting. You know, there's a lot of people who are willing to pay more than $5 a month if they know that some of that money, pool of that money will go to bring other users on, you know, basically donate accounts to other users. Um, so that's also an interesting part of the model that we're. Hmm. And so other than, you know, you saying these things here, like kind of what's the promise? Like where, where, how is this, where is this promise written? Is it, is it, is it just that uh, you guys are, are this corporation that's saying, you know, th this is what your idea ideals are or is there is there some actual promise to the user and those that are controlling it it's just as with everything on the internet we're known by our work right so um we've been uh, running a crowdfunding campaign for a few years now doing monthly delivery meetings we were doing for a very long time uh, where we basically showed different aspects different improvements talked about the timeline for development um, the Panquake build was fully funded. Now we're working on the um, support and help desk kind of uh, stuff, uh, making sure there's real humans rather than AI chatbots um, who are able to um, work with people for their requests. Let's say something, you know, I don't know, there's some kind of issue that they're having with the application. We want people to talk to real folks. Um, so um, we're gonna be known by, by how we deliver on this thing and how well we deliver on this thing, of course. Um, now we've also been doing um, some demos to folks who are, you know, journalists, influencers, people who have podcasts, be happy to show you a demo of the application and where we're at and talk a little more about some of the things we haven't revealed publicly. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're known by our work. We're known by the caliber of people who've decided to support us. Um, if you go out to panquake.com, you'll see a number of people um, who have done amazing things in the world digitally, right? Who have also, you know, decided to back us, right? And say, hey, Panquake's the real deal. And here's why I think they're the real deal. Um, so, you know, we'll get there. I can't wait till we release it and we prove to the world that we're serious about it. But um, as you said, proof is in the pudding. So, or I should say the proof in the pudding is in the eating. Which is <laughs> <good>. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, so I, I know you guys are going to be presenting a Monerotopia. I don't know if it's going to be you or I think it might be Susie that presents. Yeah, it's going to be Susie. Yeah. yeah maybe Thanks. she could show us some, uh, I don't know. So some, some action, some panquakes. Yeah, we'll have to figure that out. But um, as we get closer, of course, you know, um, then we're more willing to show certain things. Um, this kind of build takes an awful lot of work. It's It's been built with a lot of effort from a lot of different folks. Um, we're also making sure that when we release the thing, we can release the source, right? So um, that takes a certain amount of, you know, make sure we're catering our our code base correctly we're we're putting everything together in a nice package um licensing everything the right way in the free and open source software way um and also we want to have a serious open source community around this when we release um we're taking some steps very shortly where we're going to have folks who are actively working on that aspect of it and um you know as i said as that stuff starts coming out and and people start knowing where the real deal um then we will prove <laughs> that's, yeah, that's all you, i can say you don't want to release an undercooked panquake right Not, nothing worse than a little batter in your, your bite when you're eating a pan there we go that's the analogy i need to be using <laughs> right <laughs> you got to go back to the food like a little, little golden crispy edge on my yeah. um cool man so 
I know you're going to hate this question. So when when do you guys think you're going to you know release? What 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 what's the date? It'll be done when it's done. You know how it is with these projects. Um, but I will say, you know, our team's been moving very fast. Um, we really didn't get started right away because we had to raise money. You know, we didn't have some VC just dump money on our heads so we could hire. Right. So, um, you know, it took us a little while to, to get going. But then when we started going, the app build has been accelerating very quick. Um, we're building, of course, the blockchain network. We're building distributed, you know, basically media storage capabilities, media sharing capabilities. Um, we're using on the back end services um, like Knitter and Invidious, which are alternative front ends for big tech stuff. So if you embed a tweet in Panquake, for example, you're now actually just pulling in Twitter's spy code, you know, which that's an important thing for us. We don't want to go out of our way to build this thing and not spy on people. And then Twitter basically drinks our milkshake, right? Mm. You know, so we're working on all of that stuff as as well as the app build, and it's coming together pretty fast. Um, so yeah, I don't have a great answer for that. It will be done when it's done, um, but I think we're getting pretty close. Um, so I'll no, be a little quiet likes, No developer likes that, but. Yeah, yeah, and again, you know, we're gonna do this staggered release model. Um, if folks are interested, they should go out to pancake.com, you know, apply for the beta, um, and you'll know, and you'll literally be the first folks in. Um, cool. so we're going to do that slow release as well, which I'm sure will frustrate some folks uh, a little bit too, but we want to make sure we're delivering something that's usable and not just flooded with so much traffic that we can't handle it. Um, one of the things that we saw, you know, is a bunch of overnight Twitter clones pop up, which Panquick is certainly not a Twitter clone. It's much more complex than that and much more awesome. Um, but anyway, these, these Twitter clones popped up overnight because you know, people were angry at Elon Musk, et cetera, et cetera, and they couldn't handle the traffic, right? People can't get in, they get discouraged, they're not gonna use your network. You open the door to a massive crowd one day and then the next day you have nobody who cares or even wants to interact. Um, so we wanna sort of build a community. That slower growth model is more like what we used to see on the internet, right? When you had a forum somewhere, right? Um, or you had an IRC channel or whatever. Um, so. We've learned from those old examples in the past, um, and we're building something on Web3 blockchain technology um, that uh, takes that stuff to heart. Um, there was a lot of good in this network before it got turned into a spy machine, right? When, before the internet became this spy thing, um, there was a lot of good in it. And uh, Panquake is a big part for us. It's our contribution. Um, to try to bring that back a little bit. Is there any coin involved in Panquake? We don't have any tokenization, um, and we're not going to be building that in. Um, as I said, with the extensibility piece, we don't know what's down the road with that. Um, I'm sure there will be lots of folks knocking on our door once they see what we deliver. But um, we're purposefully having a non-financialized chain, which is very different. Um, you don't see that often, if ever, as far as I'm aware. Um, and that means that we don't have to worry about tokenomics um, and we can focus on really building the app and again, having this sort of flat um, remuneration with, with the $5 subscription. And then so the what incentivizes the nodes? It's just from this revenue that's coming from the customers? So to start, we're going to be working with um, digital rights groups um, and basically they're going to be um, donating us their time and processing power and bandwidth um, to help build this thing. Um, we've found a number of folks, both through my connections and other people who work on the project, who are willing to um, do this, um, who basically are incentivized because they believe in the dream. Um, beyond that, we'll see what happens, but um, it's more than enough to bootstrap this network in the beginning. And uh, we think it's going to be enough for growth of the network as well. Um, where we go past that, who knows? I mean, the other thing is people are going to build on our stuff. So I'm sure people will figure out ways to build their businesses. Um, and really, we want people to be in Panquake and using Panquake who are thinking creatively in that direction anyway. Um, what we don't want to be is distracted by, you know, tokens, coins, ICOs, etc. We don't want, uh, you know, as I'm sure Monero folks are quite aware of, you know, the regulatory environment is changing rapidly in a negative direction for all tokens. Mm -hmm. um, any group that's trying to spin up a token um, is uh, 
you know, potentially in trouble with the SEC if they're in the U.S. and so on and so forth. And um, we don't have to worry about that. We right. can focus library. on. You had mentioned library, right? And they, they've yeah. had... look what happened there. They had a wonderfully functioning network and then they basically were shut down overnight. Um, so, and it's also the, you know, the stability aspect of it, right? Um, you know, as we've seen coins that have a good, well-defined purpose that have good communities like Monero has, um, those coins last, they outlast, right? All the other coins that are out there. And when times are turbulent, they're still doing just fine. Um, in some cases being the refuge that people go to rather than be in other altcoins, for example. We're going to call them altcoins. I know that's disparaging. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, and look at all the instability around the so-called stable coins, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we're building, we know what we want to do, um, you know, as far as a mission. And that mission is much more important than worrying about tokens. So, so yeah, the, the idea is in that me as a, as a Panquake user, I'm not really incentivized to just go run a node for Panquake, right? That's not, that's not really playing an ecosystem, right? Yeah, and who knows where things would go? You know, I don't. I don't mean to pretend that I know exactly where the project is going to find itself. But uh, again, you really don't. You can be amazed how many users you can host on a Raspberry Pi in your basement, right? I've done it. Um, and uh, if you're not doing a lot of the things that these networks that are using all these cloud CDNs and crunching big data on on users essentially to spy on them, if you're not doing all that crap, if you're not shoving JavaScript trackers in your app and all that stuff then you can deliver without having to have some huge, massive, you know, server farms somewhere. Um, and we certainly want folks to be directly involved in Panquake. We certainly want volunteers who believe in, in the project. And um, individual nodes who are on the network will be using, you know, a little bit of their processing power and their bandwidth to help boost the network. For example, you could be routing some, you know, potential, you know, peer-to-peer -peer traffic through your device to a peer. Um, we want to make sure that we have that kind of P2P model built in at different aspects of the network where it makes sense. Um, but it's not going to be, at least at the start, an army of folks who are spinning up now. Any, I mean, I know this is way down the line, probably saying you want, but like any potential, you know, adding coins in other ways, like for tipping purposes, you know, perhaps like something like a Monero integrated into a Panquake, send, send Monero tips and things like that. That's not our focus right now, but of course we think about that. Um, I think it would be great. Um, and we need to think about how we can best, you know, sort of cater to that audience. Um, we're hoping, and this is part of the reason we're out doing this kind of outreach to Monerotopia and, and you know, these kinds of uh, great podcasts and events. Um, we want folks to come to us and say, hey, wouldn't it be great if, <laughs> and then we can have that conversation, right? right. Um, but, you know, I mean, we're very wary of, again, that sort of casino aspect. We just want to be careful. It's great if people are, for example, saying, hey, donate to me. I'm doing this awesome project. You know, here's my wallet address. You know, click this button, get a QR code, whatever that goes on. Um, that's awesome. But we don't want to be sort of gamifying in a way that creates a negative experience for the network. Um, and turns it into a slot machine, essentially. Mm -hmm. Just don't use Doge. Just don't don't go down that road. <laughs> I, well, I, I have to admit, I mine both Doge and LTC, All right. All right. As, as well as XMR. Right? <laughs> so okay. you know, okay. you Doge know, I, was the first crypto I ever bought in in 2013 before I knew anything about crypto. Uh, well, don't you wish you bought more of it? I know, and it, and it gets well. That's my story. It got stolen the day after I bought it, which is what. Oh, jeez. Bitcoin rabbit hole. Saved. Yeah, I always love that meme. So it's one of the first ones I took a serious look at, but I never really did much with it. Um, <laughs> I love Monero. Let me tell you, I'm very happy with performance recently with mining. P to pool is awesome, um, and I wish other coins had things like that. Um, I. I been playing around too i've got a machine actually next to me that i just put new graphics cards in um, i'm working on basically doing a little bit of testing of my own between xmr stack and the xm rig stuff um, to see what the performance is i'm trying to figure out i know that monero is very much and i think it's important that they are um, into uh, making sure that cpu mining um, is sort of i don't want to say democratized but sure why not democratized across devices to such a level that like you know it's not encouraging use of asics and so on but um I still want to see if I can crank out a little more from these video cards here. So. <laughs>
So we'll see what you can do. Don't don't uh, don't invent the ASIC over there, the Monero ASIC. That that, that would be no. I, I hey, listen. I don't happen. Just let me know first. I know hardware, but I don't know it to that level. So, um, nor would I create such an abomination. But I would let you know. <laughs> um, yeah. What What is your crypto take, man? Like, so I mean, you obviously have a, a very strong background in tech. Understand the the importance of privacy. What is your overall you know, opinion of crypto and what you see as being the value proposition, that whole spiel. Give it, give us your, your crypto take. So um, I taught what I believe is the first class on Web3 at any Ivy League university. <laughs> Did a one credit, one credit sort of fun course um, this past semester um, at Yale. And uh, we basically treat, and this is my belief, um, you know, the technologies that are now being sort of lumped under this term Web3, cryptocurrency and blockchain being part of that, um, as reinventing the web of trust, right? Um, and I think these technologies have a ton of potential we haven't even tapped. You know, every time somebody makes fun of NFTs, for example, I think about all of the things that could be done for authentication and identity and potentially, you know, transactions with NFTs, right? Um, every time somebody disparages cryptocurrency in one way or another because, you know, I don't know, the markets are down, you know, I say, hey, crypto's on sale. <laughs> I very much believe that this stuff is, um, it already is reinventing the networks that we use. It's created um, new models like DAOs, which are sort of, again, embracing the good parts of that old web, right? Um, and having, you know, sort of a built-in, uh, you know, more democratic way that people can collaborate um, and even, you know, be activists. So my take is that it's here to stay. It's reinventing the networks and um, big tech is, you know, frankly, um, shitting themselves, um, <laughs> which is why, you know, you'll have a Facebook announce basically vaporware. They, they're going to have some next generation network. Nobody knows what it's going to be, right? Um, <laughs> you're going to see a lot of that. And um, I don't like the cloud very much. Um, you know, I, I like to work on projects that I consider anti-cloud projects, uh, moving away from that centralization model. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm very uh, bullish on the idea that crypto is reinventing that aspect of the network topology. Um, there's going to be a lot of ups and downs in between. We're seeing them. Certainly this year has been turbulent, um, to say the least. But uh the network's changing beneath our feet and either we participate actively, you know, and we build the network we want to see, um, or we allow big tech to regroup and figure out how they're going to own the thing and they'll work on it. I'm sure. Which blockchains are you most interested in? Which ones do you think are, are doing the most interesting things or actually serve, you know, serving a purpose? Yeah. So, um, obviously I love Monero. Um, I think anonymity is really important. Um, any project that can have a high level of privacy when the user wants to have privacy for a transaction on a blockchain, I care about. Um, it's obviously really hard to build these things. We've seen a lot of so-called privacy coins, um, do kind of a bad job in <laughs> different ways. Um, we've seen some layer twos of course have some major issues, but the fact that people are even working on that, I think is always laudable. Um, even when mistakes are made, um, anonymity is essential to have speech on the network. And that doesn't mean that everybody should be anonymous all the time, but when someone chooses to be anonymous, they should be able to be anonymous. And any projects that push that, I, I find plenty interesting. Um, I think Ethereum is great with smart contracts, obviously, and everything that's come from that smart contracts idea, you know, all the other now smart contract uh, projects that are out there that sort of took inspiration from Ethereum. Um, as we see the cost of these transactions for writing applications on, on top of these blockchains, as we see that cost sort of go down, transaction cost, we're going to see a lot of very interesting stuff being built. Um, I kind of am okay with bear markets in a sense, because I tend to see a lot more innovation and ingenuity happen when everybody's not just checking their, what essentially is a stock portfolio, <laughs> you know, um, trying to trying to figure out what the price of BTC is at any given moment. Um, when people are innovating and building, and when when you know the the coins that survive are the ones that have these strong use cases, you know, I mean, um, yeah. So 
what am I looking at? I don't know. People talk to me all the time about all kinds of projects and I try not to give too many ones, you know, my quote unquote blessing. Um, but certainly I think Monero has a very strong place. Um, certainly I don't think BTC is going anywhere anytime soon. I think Ethereum and Solana and, and some of these other networks around contracts um, are uh, smart contracts and applications, especially um, are here to stay. Um, I think, you know, even I think Bitcoin Cash is great. <laughs> I think the idea that we can actually, you know, have certain coins that are focusing on um, spending it as cash, you know, actually spending um, the token, you know, in day to day life. Uh, that's really important stuff. Um, I've uh, GNU Taller, which is something people aren't talking about very much, but this is a new token project that's coming from the free and open source software world. Um, is designed to basically be part of a digital, you know, point of sale system. And so that tokens, um, yeah, I love it all, man. But <laughs> <laughs> what do you, I mean, what does the, the privacy lab have to say about Bitcoin's lack of, lack of privacy? I mean, it's fundamentally transparent. So do they see this potentially as a technology that could lead to more mass surveillance? Yeah, well, that's a that's a problem, right? Chain analysis is is a real thing and a big deal. Um, what people don't talk about, of course, is these ginormous data farms out there. The Utah data center that the NSA is running, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they they not only don't talk about it, you know, in the sense of it existing, they don't talk about it in the sense of like environmental impact and all these other criticisms that have been levied against cryptocurrencies, right? Um, so, you know, my take on a lot of that is sure, we're, we're going to have problems with public ledgers, essentially, you know, records of transactions that can be followed to trace, you know, um, someone's communication or payments, et cetera, et cetera. And we're gonna have that problem for a long time in blockchain. Um, but, you know, I think that we're going to figure out a lot of those wrinkles, um, if we're allowed to, um, I think we're going to come up with methods where people can have what we would consider a reasonable amount of privacy while still having that verification right on the ledger. There's a lot of folks working on all that stuff with, you know, multi-sig and snarks and everything else. Right. And, um, I think we will get there. Um, Certainly in my world, um, you know, in academia, at least that world, um, there's a healthy, perhaps unhealthy, depending on your perspective, amount of skepticism around um, blockchain. Um, it was the butt of jokes for a while, etc. Um, that's happening much less so now. I think that um, as these technologies become more mainstream and more um, entrenched in people's daily experience, you're going to find less of that. Um, I want people to be private when they want to be private and be public when they want to be public. Certainly, I put my face out there. I wasn't too hard to find when you did hear of me, right? And you can probably find a lot of what I've said and done and people I've worked with and so on. Um, it is really important for people to be empowered by their technology. And part of that empowerment is going to be revealing at least some aspects of their identity and some of the things they're up to. But it's also important, conversely, you know, when the public needs to know, for example, that their government is doing something atrocious or some corporations doing something atrocious or something else has gone on that just we're not aware of that people should be aware of. Um, they need that anonymity. You know, that's a strength for them to be able to have the power to publish. Um, so, you know, um, I know I'm going off on a tangent here. Oh, I don't find blockchain incompatible with this in any specific way, you know. HTML and websites are, you know, public, right? Um, we we had less of a idea of needing privacy in the early days of the internet because we weren't surveilled by these massive entities, right? People had handles that just had their birth date in them. You know, people spoke pretty openly on Usenet, especially if you go back and look at some of those posts about a wide variety of topics that are certainly not allowed to be spoken about these days um, in big tech world or really lots of other places. Um, so I don't I don't necessarily see that incompatible. Um, the web of trust thing, I just do want to go back to quickly, and I know we're probably going over time, but um, what's really awesome, I think, about these technologies and what really sold me on them was encryption can be used for, of course, confidentiality, but it can also be used for verification, right? And cryptocurrencies have always gotten this mix right. Um, they have different purposes, 
but um, you know, different coins do different things, different projects do different things. But um, that model is the promise of the web that we were talking about in the late 90s and the early 2000s, right? You'd have a key server somewhere, you could verify someone's public key, they hold on to the private key, again, holding on to their data, holding on to their wallet, holding on to their Panquake user store, right? Um, and you can still verify and have a conversation with them, send them something confidential, right? So you have the strong verification of their identity. They can have multiple identities and be multiple people to multiple folks for different contexts, right? Just like when we go out in the world, we are different people to different folks, right? Um, you know, I say things in a personal context. I say things in a public context, you know, um, I cater my message to different audiences. And this is not something we should be ashamed of. Certainly, uh, if we're able to get, you know, even just um, personal key management, which is really what wallets are about, if we're able to get individuals, normals, quote unquote, uh, mainstream users, average users, whatever we want to call them, if we can get them to use things like MetaMask, right? If we can get them to use these things and be comfortable with them, then they are that much closer to owning their data and not having to dox themselves everywhere they go. And I think the new generation is going to get that right. You know, we're seeing it in Gen Z and assuming we have another generation after that, <laughs> I'm not always so sure, um, you know, I'm sure they will get it right as well. Very cool, man. Very cool. Is is uh, Monero spoken about a privacy lab at all? Is is it uh, these things that are discussed? Sure. Yeah. So I always try to make sure I'm recommending a basket of tools or a basket of coins in this case. So I'm not, you know, um, hyper promoting one project over another. But absolutely, um, Monero is always the coin people talk about when they're thinking seriously about privacy. Um, I think Zcash might have had that advantage a little while ago, but lesser so. Um, and I'm sure the Monero folks know more than I do about why that, <laughs> that's. Yeah, no, it'd be cool to collaborate with the privacy lab in some way to get Monero devs collaborating with you guys, like presenting or I don't know. To... At the very least, you start with the presentation and you see if you whet yeah. people's appetite. Um, yeah. And certainly, you know, like I said, this was just a small one credit reading group we were doing on Web3 and people were practically knocking down my digital door, let's say, um, trying to get into this thing. You know, and they're basically volunteering their time. You know, I every week I brought in different speakers. Um, we went through the whole, you know, history um, relating blockchain and cryptocurrencies, but also some other technologies like distributed data stores, like Tor and other mixed networks. We related those back to the earlier battles, um, especially during the so-called encryption wars in the late 90s and early 2000s. And, um, you know, folks were... I was pleasantly surprised. So yeah, I'd love to do that. I think it would be great to bring in speakers and um, yeah, let me know, hit me up. I'm cool. around. Definitely will, man. Um, so yeah, I say this wraps up the interview portion of the show. Anything you want to get out there now, like uh, resources, where people can follow sure. all that jazz? I want to make sure, of course, I'm plugging Panquake again. Um, and I am shameless about that because I really believe in this project. So please go out to panquake.com, check it out. Um, if you would like to donate and support the project, that's great. Um, those donations are going towards really important work around, you know, supporting the users that we're going to bring in, right? Uh, we want to make sure the experience for folks there is great. Um, Pancreate.com will also do probably a better job than I did explaining, you know, the model, advertising free, not selling user data, you know, transparent moderation and all that. Um, go in there, dig through, look at the old videos, you know, of stuff that we've said in the past and make sure you reach out to us. Um, if you're interested in the work I do around privacy lab, et cetera, you can find me, uh, of course, all over the internet, but you can go out to privacylab.yale.edu and you can just drop me a line. Happy to talk. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to our show on YouTube, Odyssey, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Go to MoneroTalk.live to subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, and we are always happy to read them. So thanks so much, and we look forward to being back next week.